The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on this show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. I feel it's important to give a glimpse, to educate and share the difficulties of what it means to be a caregiver. This show always brings hope, strength, and inspiration to the forefront, but we also need to share the vulnerability, the weakness that can seep in when dealing with life's many struggles, because we all have them. No one is perfect. No one is immune. I recently found a journal entry I wrote for myself back in June of 2020. It was in the midst of Mike's treatment. At that moment, he was stable. Two months later, however, that would all change. But in that moment, he was stable. He was drawing his strength from me. I'd like to share a portion of what I wrote, as I feel it reflects a lot of the feelings that caregivers have that many don't understand. June 2020. I recently came across my journal entry from six and a half years ago, when life was great, and I was feeling grateful for all we had. At that time, my faith was my shield, having written, If God is for me, who can stand against me? I wish I could show as much strength and practice as I do in words, but sometimes I don't feel strong. I never imagined that the miscarriages were just a mere stepping stone to the struggles I now face as my husband's life hangs in the balance. If God is for me, who can stand against me? I'm saying this over and over again. Is it helping? I don't know. Almost a year into his fight against brain cancer, he is in the no evidence phase. We have hope, and he is working again, albeit from home, because on top of everything else, we are also in the thick of a global pandemic. His stability, however, has come at a price. His memory and problem-solving ability has been affected, not greatly, but enough that he relies on me more and more. It's a small price to pay for his life to be spared, but now it's on me to remind him of things. Help with daily tasks of his, schedule all the appointments, cook new healthy meals multiple times a day to see if it helps, be the voice of calm and positivity, of reason and foresight, of hope and faith for us both. 
Now that we are both working from home, when he gets stuck, I have to stop what I'm doing in work to help him. And I gladly take that on because he is my everything. I'm happy to be all these things, but it leaves me no time to grieve all that we've lost. The dream of the future that we were supposed to have. The children that were supposed to be in our life right now. I don't have time because he needs me. I'm scared all the time, but don't show it so that he's not scared more than he already is. I don't want him to worry for me. If God is for me, who can stand against me? It rings in my head, yet I can't find comfort in it. Not at this moment. I will continue to stand, hold his hand, and fight. This is what I've been asked to do, and I will do it forever for him. These are the words, the thoughts, the feelings of a caregiver. These were my words. Two years in after his death, and I'm still scared. I don't think I've said that out loud before, especially on here. Yet I keep going because Mike's love is inside me. Our love for each other is stronger than anything life is throwing at me right now. And our guest today has a similar strength, having lost her husband nearly five years ago to glioblastoma. She shares her story next, after a brief word from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery, knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tau therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gamma tile therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamatile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamatile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gamatile.com. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today, Andrea Tom, she is a mother, a survivor, a widow, and a previous caregiver. Thank you, Andrea, so much for joining us today. You are joining us from the Midwest, and hopefully the weather is treating you kinder out there than it has been out here. (laughs) Thank you, Shannon. I'm really grateful to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, the weather, you know, we're holding uh, a lot steadier than you guys are right now. So (laughs) I'll uh, I'll appreciate (laughs) that. Yes. Your husband was diagnosed with brain cancer. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about him. How long were you guys married? Tell me a little bit about your children and, uh, you know, what he did for a living, what life was like before. Sure. Life was really good. Mark and I met when I was 25. Um, He was a little bit older, dated long distance between Arizona and Cincinnati for a while. And then when we decided that we knew we were supposed to be together. We moved to the same place here in Michigan and dated for 
or lived together, dated for almost seven years, and then have been married for almost 16 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we were married in 2002. So I guess roughly we were together about 23 years. We have two children together. There's Elias, who's now 19, and he is a student up in the UP, his second year of college. And our daughter, Cecilia, who is 16, uh, junior here in Ann Arbor. And um, we have a dog, Brayman. Um, <laughs> who's not, who's 10. Um, and Mark worked for Michigan radio. He was there ever since we moved, uh, here back in 1998, he was an intern mm-hmm. for a while and then went on to work for an environmental program that he was instrumental in helping grow over the course of years. He did production. He did, he actually did stories. He did reporting. He did editing. He was kind of a jack of all trades there and a very beloved member of that organization for, uh, I guess it was, you know, well over 20 years. Wow. Um, So now you guys got together when you were 25. You said you were married for 16 years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you mind if I ask how, not exactly how old you are now, but what stage of life you're in right now? Sure. I don't even mind sharing. I'm 52. Um, okay. So you're still young. <laughs> I'm still, yeah. Thank you. I feel, yeah, you're you know, still young. <laughs> I feel so old and yet still young. Yeah. 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 Too young to be a widow, but you know, old enough to also know that life, um, life can take some really heavy turns sometimes. And uh, So now how old was he when he was diagnosed? He was 48 when he was diagnosed. Okay. So there's a lot of similarities actually between our two tracks minus the kids, but I was 24 when Mike and I had met. We actually did long distance as well. Not quite as long. It was more local long distance for the first year and a half or so. And then we got married just before I turned 30. So we were together 20 years, married about 13 and he was 44 when he was diagnosed. So very uh, many similarities there, which is really intriguing. Did Mark have any symptoms? Was there anything that kind of told you guys something was off, but you just didn't know what? Yeah. um, Yes. And of course, after you find out what's going on, you are definitely more in tune to some of the signs you may have missed. Mm -hmm. But his was really, really subtle. Prior to him going in to have it all checked out, he, I guess maybe a month beforehand, he was explaining to me, it was almost like a shuddering, like if your eyelid gets flipped up or you have a twitch in your eye is kind Mm -hmm. of, but he had it in his jaw. And he would, he would turn to me and he'd say, do you see it now? Cause he could feel it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, honey, I don't, I don't see, I don't see anything. And, um, you know, this makes me feel terrible now, but I kind of would jokingly say, oh, are you having one of your seizures again? Aww. And as it turns out, that's exactly what was happening. Really? That was a symptom yeah. of a minor seizure. It was a minor seizure. And wow. he would explain it that, you know how when you're outside, well, you might know this because of how cold and snowy it is there now, but if you've been outside for a long time and your lips get kind of, not necessarily numb, but it feels kind of weird to form words. They're tingly He's, and kind yeah. of stiff. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. he said it was like that. And 
he had the hardest time explaining it to people, but he could feel it when it was coming on. Wow. Yeah. So again, very subtle. Oh, so he talked to a doctor, his doctor, and they scheduled an MRI just to have it checked out, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of like, I'm sure it's nothing, but let's, you know, let's be proactive about this and, and get you in for an MRI just so we can check things out. Mm-hmm. Well, in the meantime, Mark and the kids and I were training for a 5K and Elias, our son, is an avid runner and actually Cecilia is now too. But we went to do hill sprints one weekend. So it was the weekend of March 4th mm-hmm. and went and did those. And Mark felt kind of funny afterwards. And he felt funny on Sunday, just like tired and kind of off. And he thought about taking himself into the ER and then kind of decided, you know, that I don't want to spend my Sunday. You know, it's a beautiful Sunday. Didn't feel like spending it there. So he waited till the next day. And I took the kids to school. And by the time I came back, he was dressed and ready to go out the door. And I said, wow, you are up and at him early. And he looked up at me and he said, I have a droop. And I said, what do you mean mm-hmm. you have a droop? You know, he had a uh, one-sided um, mouth droop. Mm-hmm. So we knew something was going on. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you that know, was and one then, of the bigger symptoms. Yeah. yeah. And that's what got the the ball rolling on the whole thing. So when he was officially diagnosed, what were the first steps for you guys? And what was going through your mind uh, mm. when you, when you heard it? I tell you, I, I think, you know, the day we went into the hospital, so we went into the ER that morning, I took him, you know, we thought for sure he was having a mild stroke, you know, that's exactly like- what I thought. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, this is so scary. This is, oh my God, you know, you're too young to have a stroke. This is crazy. But, you know, I just kept saying, but it's okay. You know, I know lots of people who have had mild strokes and they're okay. Mm-hmm. And that day went from them thinking it was Bell's palsy. And, you know, you just kept fast forwarding through the day and it just kept getting worse and worse. You know, the CT scan maybe showed a little something and uh, we think it's nothing, but why don't we go ahead and do an MRI and see, see what that shows us. And then, you know, hearing the words that they found a mass and there was a lesion. I was like, I don't even know what you're saying to me right now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what, is, what does that mean? And I think that was the first time I heard the word glioblastoma. And I, I didn't know what it was. And, and I just remember at that point, they had put uh, pool noodles around his uh, gurney that he was on in case he had another seizure, any seizure activity. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what is, I just, it, you know, it was disbelief. And also I was operating on a different plane, you know, and almost, and you know, the kids were at school at this point. So I was orchestrating how to get them home and what to tell them, what not to tell them. What do I even know? What does this mean? I have no idea Mm -hmm. what this means, (laughs) you know? So it was just, um, you know, and he stayed overnight that night and I was shuffling between the hospital and coming home and Mm -hmm. trying to get information to the kids without knowing very much and trying not to scare them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in my mind, I was like, 
well, everything's going to be okay because it always is, you know, yeah. it always is. We will figure our way out of this. This is just a blip yeah. in our story and, and everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think the first steps after that, uh, you know, I think I was probably in shock or something. I do remember after coming home and being with the kids for a while, I remember going back to the hospital and literally almost getting into like going up over the curb because I was so, I was so frazzled and I didn't know what to make of anything. And I kind of feel like I remember cursing the universe and just, you know, I probably went home and Googled glioblastoma. And once you do that, there's not much turning back. Nope. Yeah. It's, um, it's an out of body experience. It's really hard to describe to, to somebody who hasn't. It really is. It's one thing to, to be told, uh, that you or your loved one has a cancer in general, um, right. When you're told that there is a mass that is probably cancerous in your brain, um, mm-hmm. that's a whole different ballgame. And in all honesty, I, I, I hadn't even thought about the pool noodles until you said that. I completely, I, I, that just kind of went out of my mind those first few days. Yeah. I was, you know, you, you kind of think back to what it felt like for you. And they did the same thing to Mike, and I completely forgot wow. about those um, yeah. that first night. Well, because it's so weird too. Yeah. It's just so weird. You're like, what are, I don't, why are you getting out pool noodles? You know, it just. Yeah. It, it made sense to me. I've seen it. So, you know, but oh, wow. it's still, it's still very scary. Um, it's a very, very yeah. scary thing to witness. Yeah. I knew it, it, but it's, those are the, some of those details are those details that sometimes you just want to forget. Like you just kind of yeah. push them out and you're like, you know, there's just so many nuances to those first few weeks. There really are. After the surgery, was he officially diagnosed with glioblastoma right away or did it yes. transition into, okay. Nope, officially diagnosed with it a week okay. later. So on the 13th of March. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And did you guys, what did you guys, did you guys do standard care of treatment? Did you do any clinical trials? Um or any he alternative did. therapies? Oh, he did. Okay. He did clinical trials. Um, he, uh, you know, I remember when we were just getting started the process, I've never really had any experience with cancer, you know, fortunately. I just mm-hmm. haven't. I mean, my best friend had breast cancer, but I live far away. I didn't really know what, you know, what that looked like or what the terminology was. and. Mm-hmm. When I heard standard of care, in my mind, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is the gold standard. Like, this is what's going to mm-hmm. cure him. <laughs> you know, this mm-hmm. is, you know, he's getting treatment. You know, mm-hmm. he's being treated for glioblastoma. And even though I had read a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. I remember distinctly the neurosurgeon who we just adored saying, you know, after when Mark was diagnosed, mm-hmm. I I kind of understood how serious it was. I really did. I wasn't in denial. Right. But at the same time, the words I hung on to were that but there are outliers. There yes. are outliers. Yes. Yeah. And so it was just this beacon of in my mind, you have this forty eight year old, healthy, vibrant, incredible human being one of the mm-hmm. kindest people out there. I'm like, this stuff just, you know, he's got this. Like, yep. 
he will be an outlier. If anybody is going to be an outlier, Mark's going to be gonna an be outlier. Him. It's going to yep. be him. It's that ray um, of light. You just hold on to that. Yep. And they talk about, you know, when you have a great support system and a loving family like that can carry you really far. And we had that in spades. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, check, 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 check. Healthy, young, other than, you know, <laughs> other than yep. brain cancer, extremely healthy. Yep. Um so I think, although it certainly wasn't denial, it was definitely not wanting to think about the possibility of him dying. Right. Because I, I just couldn't comprehend what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Like that just didn't, I couldn't make sense of that. And then anytime you think about that kind of thing, I would say like, I can't get my mind around that. My brain can't under, and the whole time, every time I would say something like that, Mm -hmm. I thought this is going on in his brain. Like he can't even have a thought about his brain because this is going on in his brain. And Mm -hmm. it's just like, it was such a weird, the thing you use to think most about your health and your safety was what was causing all the problems. Right. And I just, it was such a weird, that I couldn't get my brain around. You know? mm-hmm. just, yeah. It just, yeah. I kept circling around and around about it. And then I just kind of realized there's not any sense to be made. Now, how did you handle telling the children? Did you both do it together? Did, when you guys got the official diagnosis and, and how did they process what was going on with dad? Sure. For me, probably the most heartbreaking thing to have to kind of understand, they were 11 and 14 when he was diagnosed. You know, we were both kind of the center of their world, of course, but Mark was the playful one. Mark was the, Mark was the, when you, when they would ask to do something, he'd be the first to be like, I'll do it. Like, I'll do that with you. And and I was always on board too, but he was kind of the, oh, I don't want to classify us as the fun one and not fun one. <laughs> but <laughs> but it was just, he was such a solid, uh, a, you know, it just, he just completed, the four of us were just a complete unit. And mm-hmm. I pretty much gave thanks for it every day. I don't think I ever took it for granted, but to have to tell them that something was wrong with their dad. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I was concerned that if I used the, the word glioblastoma, that they would look it up. And I wasn't so sure that was the right course. Like I didn't want them to completely, um, I don't know. I was trying to protect them. Right. And, I used, you know, tumor and brain tumor, and they knew exactly that he had a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. Um, I was constantly trying to give them the information they needed, give them the information they asked for, but to also not have everything come crashing down around them. Right. (laughs) And it just, it felt like it just ate at me all the time. Um, trying to keep them safe and hopeful, but also keeping some normalness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to not interrupt their childhood too much. Right. 
And I think we did a pretty good job. It just was kind of an impossible thing. And certainly as time moved along and things you know, played out the way they did, mm-hmm. the more and more information they were privy to because they needed to somehow prepare in their own way. And, right. um, but things were very good for a long time and we had a lot of reason to be hopeful. So now how old were the children at that time and how long did Mark, how long did he survive? How long did he go uh, having the disease? So Cecilia was 11 and Elias was 14 and Mark lasted, I I like to say it was 364 days. So uh, a day short of one year um, from diagnosis to when he died. For Mark, was it just that the, it just progressed beyond being able to keep it under control? Yeah, it, um, I think I was going to mention that he was involved in clinical trials. So he did standard of care, which is Timidar and radiation. Um, mm-hmm. He had a craniotomy about a week after diagnosis, or mm-hmm. a week after, excuse me, after they confirmed that he had a mass on his brain. He had the craniotomy and had a, a really good result from that craniotomy. They were able to get a good portion of it out. But um, as you know, with glioblastoma, it's um, virtually impossible to get it all out. So he got enlisted in a trial here at University of Michigan. Um, It was an immunotherapy trial, and he did very well on that for a long time. It was a blind trial, and then somehow funding went away for it, and he was pulled from the trial and then was allowed to find out whether he was receiving it or not, and he indeed was receiving the real thing. Okay. Consequently, they um, allowed him to stay on it because it seemed like there was a benefit to being on it. So we were thrilled about that. But then at a follow-up MRI, he had more progression, and he had two new spots that were they were not going to be able to surgically remove. Okay. Uh, he had a second craniotomy in September to remove another one up in the front that they were able to successfully, you know, get out a good chunk of that. But at that mm-hmm. point, he had to wait. It was really hard trying to find a trial after a recurrence, and that was considered a recurrence. And uh, mm-hmm. he ended up doing another trial um, in Boston, mm-hmm. which was a um, it had some genetic markers that his tumors had. And uh, it was for breast cancer, I believe. Um, So he flew to Boston three or four times. And meanwhile, he was having, he had started having seizures. He had some problems using his left leg. And they they thought a lot of that could be due to the medication he was on through this trial. Mm -hmm. But I kind of, I felt like in my heart of hearts that, that something just wasn't going very well. He had been doing nothing for the months of, I think, October and November. Mm -hmm. And based on how quickly it grows, he was just sort of in this waiting pattern, which was excruciating for him. And then getting into that trial gave him some oomph, you know, it it gave him something to focus on and kind of another try and Mm -hmm. knew it wasn't going to be an ace in the hole, but thought maybe it could give a little more longevity or if nothing else, some some better quality of life. Mm -hmm. And I will have to say, 
Mark did really, really well up until kind of the end of December and January things started happening. Mm -hmm. And then February was, um, was quite a thing. (laughs) Um, Mm. we took the last trip we took to Boston. He had been using a walker at this point, but could still get around on his own and was still working. Mm -hmm. And, by the time we were going to his MRI there in Boston to see how things were going, mm-hmm. he left our house walking. And the day we brought him home from Boston, we had to carry him in the house because he was no longer able to walk. And things had taken a rapid turn. And we had we learned in Boston that it wasn't working, and that was kind of the last the last hurrah. And right. um, so we were we were preparing ourselves for what was next. If there's such a thing. I don't know if there is such yeah. a thing to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, after he passed, what did the grieving process look like for you? So he, this was what, three, four years ago now? Um, it'll be five this March wow. actually, which is five years. Yeah. I feel like we lost a couple years in there of like doing the stuff that, you know, that was, I think, because of the pandemic times and it's sort of, I don't know, is suspended in time. This, so it just feels a lot more recent in some ways and, and also not. Um, yeah. Well, I wanted to know what the grieving process looked like for you. What did you do to keep going, to take a step forward each day, to keep the kids going um, after he died? You know, it was, um, I don't want to say a heroic effort on my part, (laughs) right before he died. And the kids were with him too when he died. We all got to be with him. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to respect however they wanted to do it and knew that it might be difficult. And they knew it was obviously going to be really painful, but they also wanted to be with him. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, as an adult, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't even begin to know how to process this. Like it was, right. you think you're sort of ready. You know, I had been sort of readying myself because I thought where he is now, you know, prior to him dying, the weeks leading up to him dying, I certainly didn't want him to suffer. I thought, you know, I think I'm kind of ready because this isn't sustainable. Mm Mm-hmm the bed turning and the, the, you know, the caregiving Mm -hmm. aspect of it switched so significantly. And he was cognitively um, having a lot more difficulty. Fortunately, he never forgot our names or who we were and, Mm -hmm. you know, which was just a wonderful gift because I know that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. But the last couple of days he wasn't able to communicate. And um, so I just let him know, you know, I've got the kids. And I remember after he died, I thought, what does that mean? Mm. You know, how do I have him if I don't have you? Like, what does that look like? Right. And um, so we literally just took steps forward. We, 
you know, the the week the weekend after he died, we organized. He loved walking in the woods. Like that year, he was sick. that <laughs> was kind of his. That was kind of his church, I guess,、um, mm-hmm. and it's where he found, and I think probably, to to whatever degree you can, made peace with what was going on. Right. So, we, along with our incredible community of, you know, his family at work, his actual family here, all of his friends, came and joined us for we just called it a walk in the woods, and it was just kind of to honor Mark. It was our first introduction of being—I don't—I don't know if I'm saying the word right—but buoyed, you know, like held up、mm-hmm. by our community, which we had felt all along. By the way, the year he was sick, it was. But it's、um, afterward. Yeah, when, it's afterward. When they're gone, yeah, there's a such a huge shift.、And、there is having those people literally hold you by the elbows after the fact. Ooh, um, and that, <laughs> yeah, and not want to leave your side. That is,、um, yeah, that is so vital. Yeah, his neurosurgeon even came to the walk in the woods with his oh, wife. Oh, did he really? And it、oh. just blew me away. And I, the love that day, and all the people from different aspects of his life, they're supporting. And of course, loving and remembering Mark, but also just、mm-hmm. lifting us up. You know, I won't ever forget that feeling. It just—that's、um, a blessing to have. Oh, and I felt it so much for the whole year, and actually the entire year afterwards was people bent over backwards to really show up for us. And、mm-hmm. and you know, and that's something I kind of wanted to mention about. Caregiving, you know, I think there's so many people in our world that want to help people that are struggling, and when you're faced with a terminal illness of, you know, your partner with your children's father, with kind of a staple in the community, you know, he was he、mm-hmm. was well loved by so many people,、mm-hmm. and so many people reaching out to see how they could help and. I just want to encourage anybody, if you know somebody going through something similar、mm-hmm. to this, different from this, but struggling, you know, struggling、mm-hmm. to find their way,、mm-hmm. it is an incredible gift to somebody just to show up and to,、um, you know, there's often a lot of jokes about people bringing casseroles after somebody、mm-hmm. dies, and yeah, but honestly, that. I couldn't function. I was not functioning the way you normally do in life when all this、yeah. was going on. And and after he died, all of a sudden, I was like, I have to run a household, and I have to get my kids to where they need to be, and I have to do long drives by myself, and I have to、mm-hmm. think of food every day. And all of a sudden, everything is just singular. It's all it's, singular. It's all singular. You're the primary、yeah. caregiver now to the kids, the the finances, the house. Yes, and what you say is very true. You know, at showing up for not just the patient, which is vital、yeah. and so important,、Absolutely. but showing up for the caregiver, recognizing、yeah. that even though this might be affecting 
let's say it's somebody you know, you know, it's not a stranger, it's not somebody you're just reaching out to, which I would encourage anyone to do if you see somebody going through a really hard time like this. But when you're kind of on the outskirts and know the family or know the individual, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's easy. That's the wrong word to use, but it's most people kind of stay focused on the patient. Let's be there for them. You know, let's make sure that we're strong for them. We want to help them. And then the caregiver kind of is kind of standing on the outside saying, you know, I could use some support too. Yeah. They, we have trouble asking for it. Oh, yeah. And it's more emotional than anything else. You know, it's not um, needing anybody to do anything physically. It's just needing to know that people have your back emotionally, that they're yeah. with you as well as they're with the patient. And that is vital. That yes. is so crucial, especially after the person passes, because you're right, it's a domino effect. You know, they're a pillar in the community. They've touched many lives, friends, family, siblings, but the primary caregiver in the household is all of a sudden everything. You're, the buck you're, stops just topsy- there. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. And it's just everything becomes topsy-turvy all of a sudden out of nowhere. It does. And I think, too, um, you know, like agreeing to emotionally being supportive, absolutely. And I think the the hard part is, is it's hard to ask for what you need and it's hard for the people on the outside because they want to help and they don't know how to help. And I think mm-hmm. there's a there's a missing piece of the puzzle that everybody wins, you know, when we when we kind of figure that puzzle out. Because also right. Mark didn't want to be a Mark didn't want me to be burdened with this. Like he often expressed, I this is excruciating because I don't want to leave you like with this, yeah, this mess to sort out. Um, so then when, when they die, you're kind of not only all of a sudden are you, um, up against the rest of your life, which you feel sort of weird about because you're like, well, at least I get to live, you know, at least I'm still Mm -hmm. here with the kids. At least, you know, Mark doesn't get to do that anymore. So I should be grateful for all these things, but you're also, you're, you are, in anguish because your world just looks so different all of a sudden. It's foreign to you. It really, I remember feeling like, like I had something around me that people could see. And it was like the opposite of an aura, you know, it was like, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a cloud or anything. I just felt so different. And part of me, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but part of me kind of liked having that. Like there's almost like, hey, do you see me? Do you see me still? Even though I'm by myself, like, do you see me? And then when I, and then over time that has definitely faded. And now I just feel kind of like, I don't want to say unseen, but, you know, as time goes on, there's a little bit of this understanding from everybody that, you have figured stuff out. And of course you have, you know, there's a, because you have to, you just have to, there's, I mean, you don't have a choice. No. And I think, I think if you're fortunate enough to have an incredible support system and people just helping you sort things through, which I have, like, I feel Mm -hmm. really, really fortunate, but there's also this very individual journey that you're going, you're, 
you're taking this journey as a solo individual. Like right. I can't explain to anybody how this feels. Even even you, like you, you and I have a very um, we have something that ties us together. And yet right. I know my story is not your story. And right. so I think as an individual, you, I think it's a lifelong process of reintegrating it's, and. Yeah, it, you're so right. I mean, it's, it's such a bizarre, uh, it's a very narrow and difficult path forward. Um, it's like being on a high wire. Yeah. And not knowing what's up and what's down. Yeah. <laughs> That's it the really only is. Way. That's what it feels like. And obviously having kids thrown into the mix become, I can only imagine that becomes your compass because then it's, okay, I need it to, does. To, to be kind of on the ball and on point and, and get them where they need to be so that they can continue flourishing and growing. But then there's the other part of you that is missing a huge part of who you've been for so many yeah. years. And, yeah. it, you know, when you do have a support system and um, you have friends and family and, um, you know, people that rally around you, it's great. But I don't know if you've experienced this at all, but as I head into the second year, I just hit the two-year anniversary of Mike's death in October. Okay. Um, I start to feel guilty about even feeling sad or having a hard day or a hard week or yeah. I, I don't want to tell because they're moving on with life and even my friends, it's and, and they love me and I know that, but you feel bad. You're like, oh, they're probably tired of hearing about this and I'm still just right. dizzy. Like, you know, right. I'm still, you know, it's only year two and I'm like, I have no idea where I'm going to land and right. and I hate that feeling. Yes. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you ever experienced that, but there's also, you know, yeah, that factor of guilt where, you know, you, you want to be strong and you want people to think you're doing okay, but there are so many moments where you're still just not because it is a lifelong journey. Yeah. And even though, you know, I look at where I am now compared to where I was the month after he passed. And I've definitely come a long way. And, yeah. I, you know, I'm doing this show and I'm, I've am i found some purpose in helping others. But man, I still have a lot of really hard days. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, I think, too, that grief is kind of a shape shifter. You know, like it's not. I like that. Sometimes yes. <laughs> I wish there weren't For all even you a Harry word. Potter lovers yes. out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, um, you know, you can the the term we've. I mean, I understand we have to put a name to it, but sometimes I almost feel like it's more of a sound or something. And if there was a way you could, like, if somebody heard the certain sound you made that was a grief sound and there were, there were probably like 200 different sounds, you know, it's like bird calls or something, but that they would understand where you were with it or what that feeling felt like, because there's, it's just on any given day, you can be cruising through your day or, or even for me now, you know, at this almost five year mark, I, mm -hmm. I do really well a lot. And I, you know, I, I want to say that too, that that's not, 
it is always a part of me. Like every single day, I there's some aspect of the day that is around what happened. You know, there's mm-hmm. no way of me getting around a day without that being a part of it in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes it's for a very a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I can be cruising along, and then I will have a day where everything just shuts down, like. It just, and it's almost like I need it. (laughs) You know, it's almost as if I need the cathartic, like, I'm just going to throw a fit and (laughs) I am starting to learn. I'm really grateful. I have some really fantastic people in my life that I have now gathered the courage to, if I'm in that way and I'm like, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to feel or do, or this feels really bad. And I don't even know what this is. And it feels Mm -hmm. wrong and weird. Cause I've had, I don't know about you. I don't, um, I know it's different for everybody, but my grief also showed up in my body like big time. Oh yes. Yep. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And uh, isn't it lovely? Isn't that lovely? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I spent, um, August, uh, my poor, my poor parents, uh, (laughs) celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this Uh year, this August, this past August. And for some reason, um, as I was nearing the two year anniversary, my stomach decided that you have been carrying a lot of stress internally for a year and a half, and now I'm going to act out. And so I was so sick. And for literally weeks after that, finally went into the doctor and said, what, do I have to go to a gastro? Like, what is going on? And she did all these tests and she's like, Shannon, I hate to tell you this. (laughs) And I knew what she was going to say. And she's like, it is stress and your heart and your head are are not in sync and your body, your stomach, your gut is the first to react when under physical demand and stress. And you've been shouldering most of this on your own. And the minute she said that, I just bawled, bawled my eyes out. And I was like, okay, (laughs) okay. And to be able to give it credit, like for what you're holding, because you're you're holding that like you really when you're there first and I'm sure I mean I, I I'm guessing when Mike was sick I think you were his primary caregiver right oh yeah yeah I was and, it yeah and I don't think when you're in that role when you're in it you give it enough weight to what that involves when you're witnessing your person needing you in that capacity and it's the need you've signed yeah. up for you know like I didn't even think. I was like, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. I've got his back. I've got yeah. him. You don't think about anything else. All of a sudden, you're just in go mode yeah. for those 12 or 14 months or however long. You're. It's just, you know, and you're constantly worried. So like, yes. even when they're doing well, you're like, yes. is, there, is there a shake? Is there a tremor? Am Thank I seeing- you for saying that out loud because that's the reality. Do you, do you have a he- yep. do you have a headache? How is your head today? How's it feeling? Like you're constant. Yep. It's just 24 hours. It is hours 24 a day. hours a day and it's and you wouldn't want anybody else to be doing it. You know, and that's the you don't want to burden really, anyone. You don't and you also it's your it's your partner. And I have to say that I you know, I think obviously every unexpected death, terminal illness what or whatever the cause is has its own unique 
story and flavor and losing a spouse is a very specific thing. And I think if you are fortunate enough to be in a really good partnership, which I was, and it sounds like you definitely were. Yeah. It's like a unique opportunity to be with your partner. And by unique, I mean, totally messed up, <laughs> but, but <laughs> yeah. also yeah. really These beautiful. <laughs> yes. But, um, I remember thinking multiple times, I could not love this human being any more than I do right now. Like I cannot, Yeah, I just, it drew me in to who he was even more, yeah. which I didn't think was possible. And I didn't want it to be under those circumstances. And I didn't necessarily feel like, oh, here's the lesson and the beauty in it. But at the same time, I was, I was, with him till the end, you know, mm -hmm. and which is what we vowed to do. And it felt like when you're that connected to your spouse, there's no way to describe it to a family member or a friend or no. extended family. There is literally a soulful intertwining of your lives that Absolutely. just become, it's like this your hearts become infused with each other. They become for sure just part of each other automatically. And, it's, and I'm so it's, grateful it's a double, for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. It's like a double-edged sword. It's like, you know, when you are in such an amazingly loving and healthy relationship that is that deep and that connected, it is a blessing. But then when something like this happens, yeah. it's also that much more devastating and uh, and harder and Absolutely. and and it's no death is is a great experience no it is just it is the spousal journey the widow journey after um is just such it's such a a special journey i guess is the way to say it yeah so over the last 5 years what would you say has been your greatest strength? What would you say has surprised you inwardly? I, I often hesitate and um, my family would kind of laugh that I say this, but I, I have a hard time using the word pride or proud of. I really knew when he died that my priority was continuing to raise our family in the way that we had been already like to continue that. Um, I don't know. We just had this magical quality. I wanted to keep that going to the extent that I think in some ways I wasn't trying to overshadow the fact, you know, like the reality of what had happened, but I also knew I didn't want to be completely disenchanted with life. Like I just, right. And I was concerned, you know, I, I remember, um, my grandmother, um, she lost her husband when he was 50. So she was probably, you know, right around the same age as me and never really understood, you know, why she didn't remarry. And I, and I think she was a little bit bitter with the world. Mm -hmm. And I had a really, I had a new appreciation for how that, why, like I, <laughs> I could all of a sudden see like being really pissed. I really could yep. understand going down that path. And and for sure there are days that I have that feeling. 
Yeah, just like. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you want to fight it because you don't want to be. I do. What I recognize is the ability to persevere. Like I've had some interesting, the kids and I, one of the things we do a lot of is go hiking. Like we went to, um, the year after he died, we took a, an eight day backpacking trip to Isle Royal, which is wow. um, in the UP, like out on Lake Superior, you know, you mm -hmm. get dropped off on a boat. And then you're just there and there's nobody around you. And I was oh like, gosh. oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? This is not, this seems like a good idea. But um, so, and I hadn't backpacked in a lot of years, but Mark had taken them backpacking the year before he got sick and mm -hmm. they loved it. And fortunately he had the insight. I remember thinking like, well, why can't I go? <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted a special trip with just his kids. And I was like, It's amazing okay, how the universe, the yeah. universe always kind Isn't of, it? yeah, yeah. Good heavens. So it is, um, it's interesting. <laughs> he had that amazing experience with them that they remember. I mean, it was just so special for them. And um, so we decided to do this backpacking trip and we did several things like that where I thought I am in over my head. I am in over my head between the long drives and the big journeys. But even if things kind of went awry, we were in the Smokies and I was having panic attacks and vertigo. And I thought there's no way out of this. I, what, I don't even know how to get us home. Mm -hmm. And through the support of my family and through the support of the kids and me supporting them, we keep finding our way through. It's amazing how that happens, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. And I'm, I'm super, I, that keeps me hopeful. Yeah. It really does. And it keeps me relatively grounded. So it's, um, we not too long ago had a, a massive snowstorm and it's the first really massive one that we had since Mike uh, died. And I kind of went through the same thing where I was all of a sudden outside and I'm literally snow blowing every two hours to keep up with the pace of how much was coming down, worrying about the the sheer amount that was on the roof. Um, it was three or four days of kind of keeping up with this and taking care of everything and doing the prep ahead right. of the storm and trying to get everything I needed and you just, you, you're like, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to yeah. do this? I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I, you know, I'm t so tired of doing this on my own. And, and there were points where I was physically just, I knew, okay, I, I need to stop. And yeah, I was outside at one point snow blowing and crying and of course your tears are freezing because right. <laughs> and, and you're still and you're still crying anyway and you're like just keep right. going just keep going you've got to push through this because you have oh to my this gosh. is literally five six seven feet of snow <sighs> and at one point I started to not feel good and a cardinal literally flew right across my face mm. and landed on the bush and I kind of looked up and and I was like okay Mike I'm gonna stop I'm gonna stop right yeah. now I'll go inside for a little bit <laughs> and but you you get through it and then afterward you look back and you're like wow I did that I yeah. did that I got through that yeah um, and it's it, it's just kind of how it that that is the journey like you 
you don't know how you're going to do it. And then you look back and you're like, okay, I got through that. And then another bump comes up or you have another yeah. hard time. And then you look back at that and you're like, okay. And that just seems to be the way it goes, right? That's just, for sure. you, it just, you just plot along, you know, you just keep, and, you know, pushing along. Yeah. And I think it's the, I don't know if it's an analogy or, you know, there's the saying where you can only um, see things when you connect the dots backwards. Like you, as you're in these things, it just seems like there's no way I can do this. And then you do yep. it. And then another yep. day happens and you're like, I don't know if I, and then you do it. And then you, yep. it truly is the one foot in front of the other. And I have to say, so my daughter has a shirt that says, treat yourself like someone you love. And oh. I just adore it because first of all, the fact that as a 16 year old, she knows enough to know that. That's pretty, that's <laughs> um, pretty wise. <laughs> yes. And it's kind of this reminder <laughs> that when I see it, that of course we're going to make mistakes and we're not going to do things quite right. And I'm going to send myself to the ER because I think I'm having a heart attack when in fact it is just my anxiety and my grief. And, <laughs> you know, there's all these things that just feel like, I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. And then, then just to think about the kindness piece to understand like what, what people go through sometimes is a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's a lot. Like when I hear you talk about Mike and kind of recognizing the amount of pain, like heart mm -hmm. pain associated with that, it's a lot to ask as a human being to just get up and be okay and move forward with your life, continue on and do good things and do good work in the world and, mm -hmm. you know, bring it all together and tie it up in a nice little bow. It's just messy and it's okay to, to fall and it's okay to ask for a lot of help. Or if you feel insecure or unstable mm -hmm. or just, like you kind of said, dizzy with all the yeah. different aspects of it, just to sometimes, and I know it sounds weird, but I'll even just do a lot of self-talk and I'll just say, Hey, Andrea, you're doing, you're doing a lot of things and you're doing a great job and you're doing the, you know, I, the mantra is you are doing the very best you can. And sometimes that's enough for me just to, face the next tall order, whatever it might be. I don't know if you're a very faithful or religious person at all, but um, I, you know, I've had bouts of kind of waffling a little bit with my faith since Mike died, um, since uh -huh. this whole journey happened, um, especially losing uh, the babies and stuff as well. And um, yes. I've been kind of finding my way back to it a little bit. And I always know that it's just a part of who I am on the inside. Yeah. And, I heard a saying recently that really stuck with me, and I just feel like it's part of this this moment in our conversation. Um, somebody had said, God gives the strongest soldiers the toughest battles. Yeah, I can. And I, I just feel like that's, whether it's the universe or life, they hand the strongest people the toughest battles because we're the ones that are just going to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps even if it's messy, and just find a way to keep going. And I think that's kind of a, a universal, like you were asking about faith. And I certainly, 
you know, I'm a big Anne Lamont fan. <laughs> I'm, a big, um, I'm a children fan. I ki- I'm kind of all over the map, um, you know, a little more agnostic. Uh, but I, but I certainly know that during that time, I did pray to the universe and occasionally specifically to God, not knowing really where to turn. Uh, it was mostly me requesting strength. So in regards to what you were saying, I feel like I'm not necessarily somebody that's like, you know, there's the the phrase, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And I think mm-hmm. in some ways it's like, well, nobody, nobody wants to be handed this or, or try to figure out how much you can handle. And it's not a test, but I also feel like you know, you said earlier, you know, what choice do you have? Well, there's a lot of choices on how to handle yes, something that comes into your life like this. And I think, you know, a lot of it depends on, of course, the kind of support you have or, or where you are in your life or um, mm-hmm. the relationship that that you're, you've been in. But to understand that that, if nothing else... <laughs> the strength that you gain by exercising those muscles to put one foot in front of the other and to have witnessed something that is so beyond what you kind of thought your life was going to be like and you you witnessed the change happen before your eyes and then you mm-hmm. you decide, you make that active decision to carry on. And mm-hmm. I think it's the bravest and most vulnerable thing anybody can do. And it certainly can make you stronger, like in ways that you didn't even want to be stronger, you know, like whether it's getting out the snowblower and clearing out (laughs) six feet of snow or um, figuring out how to get yourself out of the the woods. It makes you rally in a way. And I think that is part of the big mystery, you know, that, you know, when it comes to faith, I definitely feel like the times that I'm so frustrated that I can't, I don't feel like I can access Mark. And then the Mm -hmm. next minute something shows up that feels so clearly a representation of him or a suggestion that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's the most, um, when it happens, I'm usually caught off guard by it. And I definitely like to acknowledge it and, and I really appreciate it you know, whatever it is, I just, it somehow seems to come at (laughs) a really great time, you know, when you need that extra push. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. As, as we wrap up as, and as we begin the new year, uh, we're ringing in a new year and you're going into year five of uh, being without him. What what do you think Mark would say to you right now, looking down on you from wherever he is in the universe, his energy? Where What do you think he would say about how far you've come, about how far the kids have come, about where you guys are right now in your journey? You know, I think that he, you know, I think I told you earlier that I was telling him that I've got the kids. And mm-hmm. I think he would look at our situation now and it'd be a little bit of a mixed bag. I think part of him would, would understand the suffering that has occurred because of losing him. And I think he would, it would make him a little bit, (laughs) 
I mean, not actively sad, but just kind of like, oh God, I'm really sorry that, that that's what happens when you're the ones that are, are left, you know, you're, <laughs> and at the same time, I think he would be extremely elated and proud of the work that we've done to get us where we are. I mean, mm-hmm. I look at both of the kids and they, they carry him forward. I mean, they both look like him in different ways. They both have him in them and they are both kind, thoughtful. And because of their experience are, you know, they're forever changed. And, and part of that is they will have this thing in their futures where they might be able to, I don't know, understand somebody better, understand the Mm -hmm. depths of what people go through better. And Mm -hmm. I think the three of us have done a really great job staying a family. And I think he'd be really pleased about that. I know he'd be really pleased about that. (laughs) I do. And I'm going to try and stay curious about what's next. Oh, that's, that is a good, I, you know what? I love that. I think I think we're going to end with that because that is staying curious is something I'm just learning about now. And it's I've been I found a meditation, a 10-minute meditation that I'm starting to do to help me with that to get out of the the kind of rut of thinking that I've had over, you know, the last couple of years, staying curious is such a positive way to look at the grieving process and, and moving forward. So I love that. It is yes. empowering. It is it is very powerful when we're able to ask curious questions and stay and want to be curious about what's ahead for us, mm-hmm. then only positive good things can come from that. I agree. It's kind of just a little, it's like an invisible string kind of at the center of your core, just kind of pulling you, inching you forward a little bit at a time. And it, I think it can carry you a long way. That's absolutely. Well, we're going to end with that because I just think that that is the perfect perfect place. (laughs) Thank you. um, Yeah. To stay curious, um, even when you're walking through the grieving process to all of our listeners out there. And uh, Andrea, thank you so much for sharing your story, for talking to us today. you know, it not only gives a glimpse into each individual journey, but it memorializes Mark forever. Now this will be out there in the ether, but it also connects other caregivers. It connects other widows, widowers out there that even though our individual, our journeys are individualized, there is a tether to to all of us. And none of us are alone on this journey. And we, there is a way through yeah, there is a way through and you are the embodiment of that. Your children are the embodiment of that. And, and it is wonderful to see. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us and sharing your story today. Well, thank you for letting me have the time with you to share my story, Mark's story, our kid's story. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And it's been a pleasure for me to get to talk with you today, Shannon. Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, we will be right back.
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Game on Glio podcast. I truly enjoy doing this show. It's not just a matter of bringing worthwhile education within the brain cancer community, but it really is a sense of purpose. It's storytelling in a creative and natural way. Bringing us all together like this every month allows us to not only find purpose in our own lives, but to feel a sense of shared experience, no matter how difficult or traumatizing that experience has been. Whether grief and loss, caregiving, brain cancer related, or just a journey of loss in a different way. We all come together. We can all feel a sense of connectedness and not feeling alone. This podcast means so much to me, and I am so grateful that I am able to bring this show to you and that so many of you out there enjoy this show. We only have one episode left of season two, before we head into season three. And I am so proud to be able to say that we do have a third season. We've come so far in our journey with this show. We will have some amazing new stories, some video content, and we're hoping for some very special guests that will be announced later on in the year. But until then, your support means everything to us. So please share us with those in your community, share us with other organizations and businesses, help us reach new listeners and share a review, whether it's on Spotify or Apple or Google podcasts, the more you help us get out there, the more we can grow and continue to share these amazing and powerful and strong stories with others. We have one more episode left, as I stated, and that episode will air at the end of this month. It is a two-episode month. So until then, thank you all and enjoy the rest of your week. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.